Life Audio. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? Or have you been in a season where it feels like He's completely silent? Have you been praying for a way to learn how to hear His voice more clearly? Hey friends, I'm Rachel, host of the Hearing Jesus Podcast. If you are ready to grow in your faith and to confidently step into your identity in Christ, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. Hi friends, welcome back to the Hearing Jesus Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. Welcome back to our introduction to the gospel series where we're going through the gospel, starting with the gospel of Matthew. And I'm just teaching on some of the things that we sometimes miss from the history and the culture and the background, things that help us understand the text a little bit more clearly. So today we're in Matthew chapter eight, picking up at verse 14. And if you're just joining us, I would encourage you to go back and start listening from the beginning of this series. Everything kind of builds on itself. So it will make more sense, I think, if you do it that way. But we're so glad you're here. So I'm reading from the New American Standard Version of the Bible, starting at Matthew chapter eight, verses 14. It says, when Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. Now, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet would be fulfilled. He himself took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. There's a lot to unpack here and hopefully we'll get through it all today. If not, we'll pick up tomorrow. But I want to make mention initially about the location of where they're at. It says in verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's home. So this mother-in-law scene is something that is uh, just so touching for a variety of reasons. But I wanted to just spend a little bit of time talking about Peter's home, because this is one of those places in the scriptures that we have a lot of evidence for and verification of the house of Peter. Back in 1968, there were excavations done that convinced most archaeologists that this was the actual site of Peter's house in Capernaum. And so they sifted through the remains of lots of different kinds of buildings like centuries old churches. And what excavators eventually came to find was this house built in approximately 63 B.C., that was originally one story that had walls made of that black basalt stone that we talked about a couple of days ago. There was a roof made of beams and branches of trees that was covered with a mix of earth and straw. There was pottery shards and oil lamps and coins all discovered within the ruins. And they all dated back to that first century, along with artifacts that included several fish hooks and things from the layers of the first floor that indicated that it was a fisherman's house. And so the house was organized as several rooms and it was built around two interior courtyards. And the dimensions by ancient standards were fairly large, but it was very similar to other houses in the area that were built around the same time. It's interesting because this building, they can tell from the archaeology, it was a typical home for extended family. 
And Peter and Andrew apparently moved the family fishing business from Bethsaida to Capernaum, and they established their home base essentially in this house, and it was large enough for an extended family. But during the second half of the first century, not AD, the use of the house was changed. Instead of a primary residential house, the domestic pottery, which is how we tend to date a lot of things from an archaeological perspective, that domestic pottery stopped and the, the walls of the large center of the room became plastered. And that is pretty unusual for the region, except when there were groups of people that will be gathering lots of the time. So instead of it being a residential place, this is now a place that would be housing a lot of people. And there's actually graffiti that are on the walls that mention Jesus as Lord and the Christ. And that's both written in the Greek and some Hebrew. And then pieces of evidence indicate that during this time, the house became this center of Christian worship. It became a home church. And so this home church continued to be in existence for nearly 300 years. And there's evidence from over 100 Greek, Aramaic, Syrian, Latin, and Hebrew sketches of graffiti. They're in the walls. It's scratched literally into the plaster walls. And there's numerous crosses. There's a boat. There's lots of other letters. And in the graffiti, there's at least two possible instances where it says Peter's name. In the fifth century, an octagonal church was built right over the original footprint. And I'm going to put some pictures of both of these on up on the Patreon if you want to see what it looks like. But I, I want you to just think about this for a moment. We have archaeological evidence of Peter's home that later became a church. I just love that because so much of, of the history of the scriptures is lost. Now, we do have a lot, but, but there's very few things that are verifiable, but it is verifiable that Peter had a home in this area in this time frame. So I love that. So in verse 14, when it references, he saw Peter's mother-in-law. Mark later informs us that both Peter and Andrew lived here and perhaps had been a home of Peter and Andrew's parents, but it was now occupied by the sons and their larger extended families, including on Peter's side, at least his wife and her parents. And so Paul also alludes to Peter's marriage in First Corinthians. And so it says she was lying in bed with a fever. And as Matthew explains this, the, the actual language says she was having been thrown on a bed with a fever. And what that isn't an indication of is that she was in throes of a severe illness. She was feverish. They think perhaps it was malaria that was really common in that time frame, in that culture. And so fever was considered by the population to be a disease, not a symptom. And so it wasn't just like, you know, we randomly get fevers when we're fighting off a flu or something. The fever itself was seen as a disease. And so we don't know exactly, but like I said, malaria was pretty common and that is symptomatic. Uh, you know, it's consistent with those kinds of symptoms. And so it's interesting to see how Jesus healed her and the response that, that happens. And, and as I was, I was thinking about that and praying through that, I was thinking about what healing from Jesus has looked like in my own life. And I think it's consistent with what we see with his mother-in-law. The response of Jesus healing her produces in her this service upon the Lord. So she immediately got up and started waiting on him. And I've been there. I've been in that place where I have experienced healing, the healing of God in my life. And immediately it puts me in such a place of being thankful and wanting to just serve him, serve him with my life. And, and I love that we see that picture here. 
Moving on to verse 17, it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Now, infirmities, of course, means sicknesses. And this is another allusion by Matthew to the servant that is mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 in the Old Testament. And what he's doing is he's focusing on the servant's role of bringing healing. And so the servant bears the sickness of others through his suffering and his death and eventually his resurrection. And so many modern scholars doubt that first century Jews would have interpreted Isaiah 53 as a messianic prophecy. But some of the later texts from the rabbis in the later time period recognize that this was a messianic interpretation of this passage. And so what we see is even before the Jewish leaders of the time understood what was happening, Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy from the book of Isaiah. In verse 19, it says, then a teacher of the law came to him. Chapter eight, verse 19, it says that. And I want to mention this because the Jewish population They had a high percentage that were trained in things like reading and writing, but only a very small segment of those people regularly worked with writing materials. And so even fewer had access to the books or of the law or the scriptures. And so therefore, the skills of writing and reading were very highly valued. And so throughout the ancient world, there was a class of people called scribes, which were basically people that were trained in reading, writing and transcribing. And because of the importance of that trade, they would often go beyond just secretarial skills, but they would also include things like teaching, interpretation, and even helping others to understand and regulate the laws that were found in official documents. So in this culture, the class of scribes that had developed were experts in interpreting the law and teaching the scriptures. And that's why they're called the teacher of the law. And so in verse 19, it says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The teacher of the law has in mind this kind of rabbi teacher relationship and not even teacher, but rabbi disciple relationship, because that goal of that teacher of the law is to continually educate themselves within the context of the law. So that's an admission from this teacher of the law, recognizing that Jesus truly is this amazing rabbi. If he doesn't even recognize the messianic part yet, he recognizes that there's something different about Jesus. And then going down to verse 20, it says, the son of man has no place to lay his head. So the the teachers of the law would enjoy a high status within that culture. And so Jesus, as a rabbi and as a teacher, he did not have a school. He did not have a synagogue. He had no real place of honor among that religious establishment. If anything, it was the opposite. And so Jesus would stay at the home of friends and relatives and other disciples throughout most of his ministry. That's what we see. He would stay at the home of places like Peter and Andrew while he was in Capernaum. Or we see in the Bible study, I talk about this. He stays with Lazarus and his family, the sisters, Martha and Mary. That expression, he has no place to lay his head, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is homeless, but rather his ministry as this rabbi in this culture would not result in this institutional establishment, meaning he wouldn't have all the benefits and the comforts that the religious leaders at the time would have. Also, That phrase, son of man, was a really common way that Jesus would refer to himself throughout the Gospels. And it's a powerful statement because it has a lot of biblical allusions to it. 
in the Old Testament, Ezekiel would use that phrase a dozen of times or dozens of times. And it also appears in Daniel and even some of the non-canonical books. And so those are the books that are not in the Bible, but that the early church was aware of. And they do carry some historical value outside of scripture. And so Jesus said that the Son of Man must suffer and rise again. He says that in Luke, which of course is referring to his own death, as well as the suffering servant, which is mentioned back in Isaiah 53 again. And of course, that is also referring to Jesus. And so Jesus is pointing out this messianic idea of the suffering servant, but he's doing it in a way that is a little bit ambiguous because at this point in his ministry, Jesus was still trying to conceal his identity as the Messiah. He was waiting on the timing of that. So he often would use this term son of man because it was somewhat ambiguous. And so the surprise here was that he was referring to the son of man, meaning himself as having no permanent place and being rejected even in his own hometown. You know, I don't know if you've experienced this as a believer. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But I think this idea of being rejected by your own hometown or even your own family is something that carries a lot of weight for a lot of people. And it can paralyze us if we're not careful. And I myself have even just recently experienced something along those lines. And you know, it can be something that the enemy will use to try to discourage us and make us feel defeated. And yet I have to come back to the scripture and recognize that if Jesus was treated that way in his own hometown, and again, we're going to get into that later. It's it's unpacked more for us later in the gospels. But this reminder here that he doesn't even have a permanent place. He was rejected in his own hometown. If they rejected Jesus, then if I am representing Jesus. It is only natural that they're going to, I'm going to experience the same thing and they're going to reject me. And so maybe that's just a word of encouragement for somebody today that if you're experiencing that, it's okay. If you're experiencing this rejection from family or hometown or your, you know, your high school friends because of Jesus, it's okay. And he sees you and he understands and he wants you to recognize that the identity that matters is the identity that he gives you as a son or daughter. Verse 21, it says, another disciple said to him, and just to make clear that, because I think this can kind of be confusing, this is not one of the 12 disciples, but this is one of the disciples from this broader circle of followers who have now gathered around Jesus, maybe not even fully understanding what his form of discipleship will be. And like the teacher of the law, that is a person that wants to be a disciple of Jesus, that wants wants to be around him, listen to his teaching, but maybe doesn't quite understand him yet. And, you know, that term disciple, it's kind of used loosely here. And so it's not that it was one of the original 12 disciples is questioning him about going and burying his dead. No, this is instead somebody that wants to be a disciple and is not yet understanding the cost that that's going to entail. And then Jesus talks him through this whole burial situation where he says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And in the Jewish culture, the burial of the dead was extremely important. It came from one of the Ten Commandments, that idea of honoring your mother and father. In that culture, it would have been inclusive of the burial. And so normally in the burial situation, touching a body, a dead body would be forbidden. But in the religious law at the time when it was your family, you were allowed to be defiled by touching the dead if it was a family member. And you were also excused from reciting daily prayers, even if it was just temporarily. 
but it was a big deal in their culture. And I mean, it is in ours too, but it was a really big deal for them. And so for Jesus to say this and talk him through this, it communicated the urgency and the priority when it comes to following him. Following him takes precedence over customs and even over family. Boy, that'll preach. It'll preach even to me today. It's preaching to my own heart. And then as he says, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus later rebukes the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for not rightly honoring the father and the mother. So he's not advocating for going against the Old Testament law of or Ten Commandments of honoring your father or mother. That's not what he's doing. Instead, what we're trying to do is understand the response that Jesus has. And there's a number of explanations for this, but some think that a couple things that the person's father had not yet died. And so he wanted to stay with him. The disciple wanted to stay with him until he did die. Some think that he is fulfilling this second stage of burial, which is the transfer of the bones of his father a year after the death. And they would take the bones. This is so gross. But after the body had decayed a little bit, they would take the bones and they would move it to an ossuary. And if you go with us on any of our Bible study trips, uh, when we go to Rome, you will actually see what one of those looks like. We go down to the catacombs underground and we see what an ossuary looks like. And we see where they would have stored bones. It's different. It's similar, but it just gives you a picture of what that would have looked like because it's so different from our, our culture. It was an underground burial place where, I mean, it's like this big and bones would be stuck inside of there. So some think that that was that year long process that he was going back to do to move the bones. And because that was really common in their culture. And then sometimes some of the scholars think that perhaps this was an explanation in this metaphorical illusion in the language so that he's intending to mean something like the phrase, let those who are spiritually dead bury the physically dead. So in any of those cases, Jesus perceives the real problem with the disciple is that he's not clearly understanding the place that Jesus must have as the primary allegiance in his life. And, you know, if you have gone through any kind of family stuff as a rejection for the boldness of your faith, I think this passage, these both passages are incredibly important in helping us understand that it's okay. And it is not anything that Jesus himself hasn't gone through. It's not anything that he doesn't recognize. But when we say there's a cost to following Christ, it's not that immediately it's going to cost us a lot of money. I think sometimes there's this relational cost because that sold out 100% commitment to the Lord. Not everybody's going to get it. Not everybody's going to understand it. And that's okay. So I just want to give you the grace and the freedom to just be okay with the tension that's there. So given that insight, I'm going to go back and reread Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 22. It says, When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. Now, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet will be fulfilled. He himself took our illnesses and carried away our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Father God, we thank you for the way that your word reveals 
so many things to us. And, and even this idea that you didn't have a place to lay your head, that there was a, a sense of rejection in your own hometown by your own family that you had to go through. And sometimes we forget that. We think that when we go and we commit to this Christian life, that things are going to be easy. And while things are not easy, for many of us, they are not easy. They are worth it. God, we recognize the priority that is in our relationship with you and the allegiance to you that is the primary foundational relationship and how even in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the sorrow that comes from the rejection from family. Father God, we thank you that you are not just a father, but you are a good father. You see that and you love us through that. Good God, give us the strength to go through those moments today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, friends, I'm praying for you. Have a great evening. Hey, friends, as we lean into a new month and we continue to learn and grow together, there's a couple resources I want to make sure you know about so you can take advantage of. The first is our Patreon page, and the link for that is in the show notes. And on the Patreon page, we have a couple things. We have a dedicated space that is for discussion, for asking questions. You get easy access to me where we talk about things. We hold each other accountable. There are resources that go with the show, like a journaling prompt worksheet download for every single adult show. We also have family discussion guides. And what's really been neat about those is that on the kids show every day, I talk about the same content that's on the adult show, just taught in a way that kids can understand. Then the family discussion guides create an environment for you to process that information with your children. You can use that at the dinner table or even as part of your devotional routine. There's some suggested prayer and activities and things to help you connect that content to the appropriate age for your children. So all of that is on the Patreon. Also, there's some prophetic words, extra videos, transcripts, all those kinds of things. The second is on our website. If you go to shehears.org, there's a shop resources page that has my Bible studies that I've written, links to different journaling Bibles, note-taking Bibles, all sorts of resources to help you grow. And then also on our website, we have the coaching section. If you are finding that you need some spiritual direction or life coaching, that is available for you as well. And that's really good to help you process what you're learning. If you're feeling stuck, if you need to work through something, if something just isn't sitting right, or if you want to teach this content and you need to help develop a plan, I'm available to help you do that as well. Again, all of these are resources to help you grow in your spiritual life and hear God's voice more clearly. I want to take just a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on the podcast. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hey friends, if this podcast helped encourage, empower, or equip you in your walk with God, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, bonus content, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Know that you are so loved. Keep going. Keep going.